Hello everyone, this is Yulei Strate. Today I'm hosting Raj Chaudhry as part of the Making Remote Work series. Raj is the Lumri Family Associate Professor in the Technology and Operations Management Department at Harvard Business School. His research has been published in numerous research journals, he has been profiled by the BBC and CNBC, and cited by Bloomberg Businessweek, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Yahoo, and Inc., among other outlets. He is also the winner of several awards granted by prestigious institutions. Join us as we discuss the future of remote work after the pandemic, the distinctions of working from home versus working from anywhere, and the benefits the latter can bring in terms of productivity and innovation. We also touch on Raj's research on migrant workers and pro-social behavior in crisis situations. Making Remote Work is a limited series led by the organizational design community and hosted by skills for mars It is a public service video podcast in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It will host over 20 researchers and practitioners in the field of distributed work. They will share their insights and knowledge to support companies and employees who are making this transition. If you do find these types of conversations useful, you can support the podcast by subscribing to it. To access the video podcast and subscribe for free to my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com forward slash skills for Mars and hit the subscribe button. Alternatively, you can go to www.skillsformars.com and click the YouTube confirm your subscription button. And now I give you Rush Chaudhry. Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I'm welcoming Raj Chaudhry, who's a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Raj, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you, Yulia, and thank you, Fanish, for introducing me to this. Would you be okay to introduce yourself and your research, particularly as related to remote work? Sure. So I'm an associate professor at, at HBS, and what I study is can be broadly thought of as the geography of work. So that entails two streams. I've been studying for a while the productivity outcomes of mobility, geographic mobility. So when people move across borders, and these could be national borders, could be state borders, how is innovation outcomes, how is productivity impacted? Uh, connected to that, I, I, I got interested in studying immobility, the, the constraints and the costs that lead people not to move. And once I was studying that, I got really intrigued by uh, remote work, especially the versions of remote work, which do not uh, uh, need people to move. So where you have flexibility over geography. So we call that geographic flexibility. Uh, so the three streams of my research broadly could be thought of as studying geographic mobility, trying to understand geographic immobility, and then trying to understand geographic flexibility, which is the remote work, work from anywhere stream. Perfect. Thank you. I think this past days you have been asked quite a lot to, have, to do a lot of interviews, write articles on what's happening right now with the pandemic, right, and, and remote work. What would be some of your current reflections on what's happening? Sure. So no, I, uh, I think uh, the first uh, reaction, of course, is it's very different from what is the steady state, the normal state I've been studying, uh, especially with my research with the U.S. Patent Office and GitLab. Uh, so this is nothing like <laughs> those, the, those normal uh, steady state discussions. Um, uh, so I can, you know, tell you from my personal experience that, you know, this is uh, a very different regime where you don't have 
you don't have the supporting uh, uh, mechanisms such as uh, you know th that separate family and work. So you know, right now I'm working with two boys in the house and like everyone else. Uh, but you know, just trying to understand the current situation, I think uh, many people are are starting projects to do that. And uh, you know, we don't have a lot of insights. Of course, it's very early days. Uh, but with Wesley Koo and Sheena Lee, who are both uh, at Instead, we just uh, finished a working paper. So I can talk briefly about that if you want. That, that, would, be, that would be really nice. Yeah. So we essentially um, uh, framed the study as understanding how workers are reacting to this crisis, because this is a crisis. Uh, and the starting point for us was the paper by Seth Carnahan and David Krasinski and Dan Olson. Uh, in AMJ, where they looked at how lawyers reacted to the 9-11 crisis. And they essentially, I think, make the argument that uh, workers in a crisis want to make pro-social contributions. Uh, in that context, it was through pro bono hours. Uh, and firms which encourage these management practices also create value because you experience less turnover. Now, this crisis is huge. It's like 9-11, but it's very different because of social distancing. And there have been two things that have happened because of social distancing, at least in, in, the, in the way we frame the paper. The first is our work arrangements have changed overnight. So some people are working from home, but some people cannot work from home. Like if you are in the manufacturing industry or computer hardware manufacturing, you cannot work from home, at least not now. Uh, the second thing is our ability to make physical social contributions is not there. We cannot go and volunteer in a food bank or do pro bono hours. So what we did is we studied this context of online social contributions in China. And we, sh we essentially study how the, the lockdown starting early February affected the ability of the folks working from home to make these contributions versus the people who cannot make these uh, cannot work from home. And so we have three headline findings. We found on average, the contributions for the folks working at home was 19% lower. Uh, and you would argue that's obvious, they have to work, uh, and so they don't have enough time. Actually, this this was surprising because usually it's said that uh, first productivity is increased, right? So And then people have more time because there's less commuting time. So f at first it was actually surprising that it is lower. <laughs> no, so these are, Yulia, uh, these are a voluntary social contributions okay. to an online question-answer site. So this is not... This is not classic work. work per se, okay. uh, but this is trying to understand how workers are reacting to the moment and, you know, building on the work by SET and others, which says in a crisis, workers want to make social contributions. So we find the folks who are working from home, they're making less contributions. But interestingly, in some topics, they're making way more contributions. So one of those topics is uh, best practices on working from home. They make 146% more contributions there. But also what we found is that their contributions with, with, were clustered between the 8 p.m. to midnight timeframe. So while people who were not working, they were making contributions all throughout the day, the folks who were working like me or you, they were making contributions between 8 p.m. and midnight. Uh, and then we also observed in the data, they were exhibiting uh, more negative sentiments. So mm -hmm. there's, there were some sort of like suggestive evidence uh, with regards to psychic costs. So the argument we make in the paper, just to cut to the bottom line is, we essentially said that in this crisis, workers want to fulfill their social role, 
but working from home in this chaos might constrain them. So one managerial solution might be to give them extra time or free hours, saying take a couple of hours uh, out of work to do your social role or even family role. So that, you know, that, that's where I'll stop. But it's a very early stage project, so we'll have to keep working on it for weeks, if not months. Well, I think it's very interesting because pretty much it would help managers and companies keep their uh, employees engaged and uh, show a bit of social responsibility as well by supporting them in, invo- in getting involved in all sorts of social behaviors. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Do you think this is making everyone feel the, the psychic is very much affected because we are in closed environment? Or is it also because we call this a social distancing, whereas it's more of a physical distancing, or at least in my mind. But I think this word social seems to be extremely strong and it can be taken literally by, by, by some. That's true. And that's a great point people should study. And that's why we got really also attracted to our uh, outcome measure, which is social contributions online. Mm -hmm. So yes, we cannot, as you said, physically interact with each other, but we can always interact with each other online. And just yesterday, I was reading a New York Times article, uh, which says that making these online contributions is really, really um, uplifting in many ways. So even if, uh, so in our context, we look at contributions related to answering uh, questions about work-family balance and uh, how to work from home. But even if you're posting a funny video of your kid, and if like people are smiling at that end of the day, that's a good thing, right? So I think uh, we should encourage that. True. And even if you're posting pictures with flowers or whatever, something that is not related to, to the pandemic, because all the media outlets, this is this is the only thing we hear about. So I think it does influence us very much when we sit at home and that it's the only news that uh, that uh, that right. we have. What kind of data are you collecting right now and what are you looking to find out? What's interesting for you? And I can tell you where I'm coming from. I had a discussion yesterday with uh, with Marco and then uh, we concluded uh, after a survey ran on uh, LinkedIn that it would be really nice for companies and it's a very good time to experiment, collect data, analyze data, and then understand, hey, is remote work good for you? How can you uh, uh, put it in practice? How are social networks functioning in your company just by looking at email and so on? So what I'm looking for is, are you looking into any kind of data that maybe companies should start collecting so it can help with the research so we can get better knowledge out of, out of this crisis? Mm-hmm. No, so absolutely. And I'm in the middle of uh, a few discussions like that. But the thing is, you know, managers are also trying to just manage the moment. Um, so and I totally understand that and pay respect to that. So it's it's been tougher than usual to engage on saying, let's go and design uh, or, you know, find a appropriate design that exploits the natural variation in something. Mm-hmm. But I'm hopeful that over the over the next few weeks and months, uh, you know, both myself and other researchers will be able to find really interesting settings. Uh, but as you said, you know, in the past, that's exactly been my sort of uh, go-to like method. You know, I, I look for natural experiments and um, I can talk more about the U.S. Patent Office study that was done about two years back uh, where we looked at uh, remote work and working from anywhere. Yeah, so let's let's uh, let's go go there because I think that works really nicely with um, all the talk that we had so far on all remote companies. This is a hybrid sure. company that you are you are talking about. It is, it is. So the U.S. Patent Office uh, started, uh, uh, you know, so they have different forms of remote work, and the most uh, traditional form they started in um, 
the, you know, around 2003 was working from home. Uh, they called it PHP. And under that, the, the, the contract was that you could work from home four days a week. Uh, so you had to come one day a week to Alexandria, Virginia. So the, the implication of that was people had to live close to Virginia. You could be 50 miles away, maybe 100 miles away, but clearly you could not live in California. Uh, so that's what they did for many, many years. Uh, and they actually started that in 2007, so I should correct myself. And then in 2012, what they studied, what they started was a new form of remote work, which they called TEEP. Uh, but essentially, the, the contract there was you could now go and live in any part of co continental U.S. and you didn't have to come back to the office ever. Uh, so maybe for a training program once or twice a year where you pay the flight ticket, but you don't have to come back regularly. And so immediately, uh, there was tremendous latent demand for this. And so lots of people expressed interest. But the natural experiment there was the patent office, as many of the scholars listening in would know, they have a union. They have a union of patent examiners. And the union gets into every single major implementation. So the union negotiated a monthly quota for how many people could self-select into this. So people were self-selecting into the program. But because of the quota, uh, and we show this in the empirics in the paper, uh, people had to wait for, for an exogenously random amount of time because the quota was every month. So some people got it right away. Okay. Some people got it in the second month. Other people got it in the fourth month, sixth month. And the quota was for the first 24 months. So the timing of the treatment was exogenous. So you self-selected into the treatment, but the timing of the treatment was exogenous. So that's the natural experiment. And the sort of like high level findings there is we found that conditional on that treatment, and this is looking at individual fixed effects. So the same examiner, how the productivity changes, we found uh, the output went up by 4.4%. And the mechanism there is we found people exerting more effort. So we found them uh, doing uh, more first office actions, which takes the most amount of time. And, you know, I can talk about the details if you want. Uh, but that was the natural experiment that we studied. Uh, and we actually found that this 4.4% was from the baseline of work from home. So you had to be in the work from home program to go to the work from anywhere program. And uh, correlationally earlier, we found in 2007 to 2012, when you went from the office to work from home, also output went up. So output went up both times when you went from office to work from home, that's a correlational result. And then when you went from work from home to work from anywhere, there was arguably this more causal result of 4.4%. And I know this translates in quite a lot of money. I was, I was impressed because uh, this output basically uh, was connected to more innovation at the U.S. level, right? Or the, or the implementation of innovation earlier, which led to about uh, 1.4 billion U.S. dollars or something like this. So very, very interesting. How can we connect this work from home, work from anywhere to what is happening now? Or so what will happen question. after? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Yulia. So I think, uh, you know, I am most excited about the work from anywhere version of remote work because that's, that's uh, connected to geography, which I study. So I feel the first thing that managers, uh, in my discussions with managers, that they sort of really get excited about is real estate cost savings. Uh, because if people are working from anywhere and never coming into the office, you don't need to build the cubicles. And that's immediately what hits the bottom line. 
And especially if the company is based in an expensive place like Silicon Valley or I don't know, like Mumbai, uh, that is immediately something managers get. And it's also in the USPTO paper, we show that. We show that there was a large uh, real estate cost savings, but there was also a saving for the worker because the worker can now self-select to go and live in a cheaper uh, place. They don't have to live in Silicon Valley or New York. In the USPTO's case, it was Alexandria, Virginia. So we found on average people saved about a standard deviation of cost of living. Uh, so I think it's an immediate cost uh, uh, saving argument for both the company and the workers. And my, to answer your question, I feel uh, given this period of forced working from home, some managers and some CFOs will look at those empty office bu uh, buildings and say, hey, do we need to build the marginal floor or do we need to rent this next building that we're thinking about? And hopefully some of them will make that argument uh, internally and make this more permanent. That's my hope. It, it is my hope as well. But I think there are, I, I've read some of the research and there are differences, right? It's it, mostly software companies are prone to doing this. It's easier for them because there is automated software supporting them to then merge their product together, right? Maybe it's easier for recruitment agencies. Recruitment can be easily done uh, done online. So there are certain types of companies which seem to be more prone and, and, and better served by, uh, by remote work. And then I can ask you about this, but my, my question, my first question would be, how should they think about this? Should they think about going all remote? Should they think about doing a hybrid? And if they are doing a hybrid, should they implement it as a benefit to some of the people if they get to a certain hierarchical level or they have certain uh, um, results? Or should they do it as the uh, patent office did it, as more of an experiment or a pilot so people can opt in and out? How, how would be best to go about this if they do decide that, hey, remote is good? Do I go all remote? Do I go hybrid? And if I go hybrid, how, what do I choose? So those are all great questions. So I'll tell you my thoughts. And I think uh, this is something that we as a community should study. And I don't think there are answers um, that we have right mm -hmm. now. But I'll tell you what my hypothesis or my priors are. So first of all, in the patent office paper, what we say is that the low-hanging fruit is to do this for workers who are fairly independent in their task. So patent examiners don't work in large teams. And uh, building on Phoenicia's research and Srikant Kannan's research, that means the coordination costs are very low. Uh, so this is a setting that can be described, and uh, the academic friends will understand this, uh, in like Thompson 1967 language. This is an, an example of pooled interdependence. Uh, but if you are in a setting where you're working in a team with more sequential or reciprocal interdependence, who knows? Maybe it's not a great idea. Uh, the second thing that the patent office did was, so it was not only uh, examiners were, were doing a fairly independent task. They said you have to be in the patent office for at least two years and you should have done work from home. And then only we'll allow you to self-select and to work from anywhere. So those two uh, conditions essentially mean that you know some folks and you have an internal intra-firm social network. So even when you are in Florida, you can call someone if you get stuck on a prior art search. So they took care of the coordination problem. They took care of the learning problem. But that was my prior till I started my work with GitLab. 
And GitLab, as you know, is an all remote company. And yes, their product is very amenable to uh, this kind of uh, work arrangement. But there, I think what really struck me as an insight, and I just finished, uh, I just published the case, uh, the HPS case on GitLab, and we're doing some research now. Uh, uh, what struck me was the C-suite in GitLab is like any other C-suite. And they are all remote and they are living all over the world working from home. So the argument, and this is the question, I think it's an re interesting question to at least ask. And we don't have answers, at least I don't. If the GitLab C-suite can work from home, distributed all over the world, why can't any other C-suite do the same, right? And I, when I think about conceptually the hybrid versus all remote model, you know, there's a lot of research in the remote work literature uh, by Batia Weisenfield, there's a Cooper and Kirkland paper, which talks about different forms of isolation for remote workers. They feel physically isolated, they feel professionally isolated. And so at least one thing I've been thinking of is in an all remote company, maybe no one feels isolated because everyone is remote, right? Uh, but whether an existing company can overnight go all remote, I don't think they can. Uh, and I think the interesting uh, example to study over the years would be Dell, because Dell actually uh, had a very uh, sort of ambitious plan of saying, we'll become 50% remote by 2020. And presumably they've done that. Uh, and so essentially now it'll be what is next for them. So I think uh, there are lots of interesting research questions, managerial questions that need to be answered in the next several years. So you mentioned about the patent office, about the coordination cost, right? And the fact that workers need to have pretty much independent work from each other so that you gain the benefits, right? Of at least working anywhere, right? When you say coordination costs, what do you mean? Is it just in terms of technology? Is it in terms of training, of knowledge? So it can be all all of the uh, all of the above. So uh, coordination. Uh, so in the patent office, the only coordination you need to do. So you don't have to. It's not. So when you get a patent, uh, when you submit a patent to the patent office, what happens is it gets assigned to an individual art unit, and the art unit is like a team of examiners who examine that technology, or related technologies based on the IPC or the CPC or the USPC classes. Now, within that art unit, there is one individual examiner who gets that uh, docket, as they call it, and he or she stays with the docket for two to three years, and there are multiple rounds of revision, but it's not that that examiner is uh, doing part of the examination of the docket and someone else is doing some other part. So then there's no sort of coordination there. The only uh, coordination is that there are uh, the patent examiners are distributed on a vertical hierarchy, uh, which they call the GS system. So it goes from GS 5, 7, 9, then 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And if you are GS 12 or below, then you have to get your work checked by a supervisor. That's it. That's the only coordination. If you are GS 13, 14, 15, you can sign your own work. Uh, but in a different setting, if we are building like a, you know, some product or I don't know, something else, where I'm doing part of the work, you are doing part of the work, and your piece needs to be compatible to my piece, then there's presumably more coordination. We have to share information. We have to share knowledge. We have to pr presumably sequence our time. And, you know, Fanish has done a lot of work on tacit coordination mechanisms in distributed teams. So it's we have a fair amount of literature there. Uh, 
but the patent office is really the low-hanging fruit because there's no code, almost no coordination. And it, they only allowed very experienced people to do this. Uh, but my work with GitLab just makes me think whether there are different coordination mechanisms and different uh, socialization mechanisms that can be put in place to make this more general. So that's, I think, an open question. So, so what have you seen with GitLab so far? So they actually, the most interesting thing that I found in that setting uh, was that how they use, how they communicate very differently. So in a traditional company, uh, our communication, a lot of it is synchronous, right? So synchronous could be face-to-face, -face, uh, tapping your shoulder, or through like Skype or Zoom or these. Uh, but in GitLab, they have this uh, this uh, uh, management organizational process that they call handbook first. So what that is, is they have this company-wide handbook, uh, which can be thought of as codifying the organizational knowledge or the organizational code. And they really, really emphasize people updating that handbook asynchronously. So you don't have to do it in real face-to-face. Uh, -face. So I think the, the easy way to understand this, and this is what I've been explaining to other people in other settings. So imagine you and I work on a project. We can open a simple Google Doc uh, or a Slack channel, and then you're working in different time zone than I am. And what I can do is I can really in detail write down what I did in the Google Doc or the Slack channel so that you wake up, you read what I've done, and there is no information loss. So that's what GitLab strives to do. They don't do it perfectly, but I think they do a much better job than other organizations, at least I've seen. And I feel that is really critical to how they manage their coordination, they manage their learning. So this asynchronous uh, sort of handbook first uh, is one of the, the processes I thought was, was very interesting. The other one is they do these uh, virtual water coolers because one of the problems is professional isolation or uh, just the physical isolation, right? And especially if you're an introvert, maybe you're not motivated to reach out your, on your own and get to know your colleagues. So they have these random uh, water coolers where they randomly assign people uh, to come and just chat about the weekend, about your pet, about anything. But they also do these uh, uh, temporary meetups where they get the entire company in one location. And what they've told me is that in those meetups, they don't do a lot of work. They just go hiking or uh, food and drink. So I think they have put in place a few processes which can be very important and interesting to sort of replicate in even larger companies. And maybe that will make remote work more successful and sustainable. Yeah, that definitely. And I've heard them say, and I've heard the employees and look on, on their Glassdoor reviews, and they comment on GitLab as being one of the more most social companies that, they, that they've worked for, which is kind of incredible for an old remote company where people barely meet each other, right? They do see each other's homes directly. It's very intrusive if you want because everyone works from home or from place that they love so you can immediately draw some conclusions on the other on the other person so it can feel like it's very vulnerable but at the same time they feel like it's extremely extremely social now 
I know this also goes against what companies are doing right now, because most of the companies I've worked with, they don't collect this information in a handbook or anything like that, even though they have repositories like SharePoint, uh, even email or Google Docs or Teams or whatever, they hardly do it and they see this as an extra additional work and they don't put the effort in it. So, and I understand where the handbook is coming from. Um, and we will have discussions with GitLab as well on this on this podcast. And I think it's kind of interesting for other companies to understand why this handbook is so important and how it helps this uh, this company. But I also think it's very hard for companies that have never kept something together, uh, uh, documented their work to do this. Have you seen some doing this, starting to do this or not yet? Have you seen anyone trying to get their model? So I haven't. And I think, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I want to do research on this. I've not uh, explored this question mm -hmm. in a more traditional company. But if I just think about myself, you know, as a, and my colleagues that I've worked with, I think it's, it's a very tough uh, change to make because not because the companies won't be supportive. You know, if you tell the CFO that you do these steps and then you can save so much, many dollars on real estate costs, they will jump at it. Right? So, uh, but I feel it's going to be a change in behavior for individual workers. So we, you know, as long as we collectively don't do this, it's not going to be. Uh, so I think there has to be some sort of a way to make people, individuals, change their behavior. Because I think the critical thing about the handbook updating is not only that you have to do it, you have to do it in great detail. So there's no information loss and you have to do it in real time. You can't say, I'm going to do the work today. and oh, I'm going to update the handbook like three days later, because then there is an information loss. Your colleague in a different time zone wakes up and there's no information, right? Or it's overlap uh, of work because they started to work on it and they have no exactly. idea you are. You and are then they'll call on. you and then this, you might be sleeping and, and that synchronous communication will fail because you didn't attend the calls and then remote work starts to fail. So I feel that that I don't know how it's going to happen. And it's an interesting question, whether we can prime individual workers to change their fundamental behavior for documenting stuff in real time in detail. And I think it will be a fascinating study if someone can do that. <laughs> Maybe at some point when blockchain is implemented, right, and there's a record of data for everything, which is already right you don't have to input data anywhere and it might just be collected automatically maybe that will help but it's just a thought nothing uh, nothing more than that. um raj you also do some research on innovation and knowledge sharing in remote settings so and then this is i think i feel it's connected to the handbook that gitlab is using as well because having innovation and, and having knowledge sharing, you need to have a repository of data. You need to have a repository of brains and what's happening. So how is this happening in remote settings from your research and what's best to do? What are some practical advices from there? So I guess um, knowledge sharing, you know, so the two settings I know the, the best in, in the U.S. patent office, there's a lot of uh, these kinds of calls that people do. Uh, and the main concern was that once they moved out of Alexandria, Virginia, uh, they wouldn't have these uh, serendipitous meetings in the in the water cooler. Actually, they they uh, used to do it in the basement of the USPTO because that's where they put all their prior art documents. And they, now it's all computerized. But in the olden days, 
they used to put these physical documents in something called the shoes. Uh, and there's a funny story, apparently, one of the prior US presidents was a patent uh, examiner, and he used to put all his prior art documents in his shoes. And that's why that whole basement is called the shoes. So they went down for the sh to the shoes. Uh, a lot of people used to smoke, and they had all these uh, informal discussions. So, and the concern was, will people, when they move out of the office, that was why the union was skeptical, apparently. Um, but they, they do a lot of knowledge sharing uh, in, in, in uh, calls like this. And the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the advantage for them is all of them are in the US. So the time zone difference isn't like too bad. It's like plus minus three, four hours, right? But GitLab is a global company. Or, you know, I, I've been uh, talking to Zapier, which is an all remote company, and they're a global company. Um, and so if, if you're a global company, you cannot do face-to-face -face communication on Zoom or Skype all the time. So that's why I think uh, my next sort of like uh, uh, you know, thing to do on my list of research is to understand how to make this asynchronous communication via these organizational handbooks more efficient uh, and what kind of uh, incentives at the worker level makes this happen. So how do we make knowledge sharing more asynchronous uh, and more successfully asynchronous. Did you see any uh, evidence of innovation while while you worked for these companies in all remote companies and how this is happening, not only knowledge sharing? So I haven't specifically looked at new types of innovation. That's something I've looked at a lot in my mobility stream. Okay. So I've looked at what happens when people move geographically and how that impacts innovation. So I can talk about that if you want, uh, but not in the remote setting so far. Okay, can that be applied to any any remote setting? I think it's I think it's very interesting to talk about it if you want. So what I, I'll tell you what I found in my uh, geographic mobility research. Uh, so in the SMJ paper with Doyun Kim, so what we found is when uh, migrant inventors move across geographies, they are carrying this knowledge which might be locked in in the local geography for many many years because it's very tacit. Uh, so the practice of that knowledge needs actually the person to move. And so when they move to a different geography, so the setting that we studied was traditional medicine. And we looked at this exogenous shock to H-1B visas in the U.S. And which led to a supply shock of Chinese and Indian inventors joining U.S. pharmaceutical companies. And then we conducted diff and diff because we looked at certain U.S. pharma companies were exempt from this visa shock. Uh, because they found a backdoor. So we conducted diff and diff, and we found that uh, the, the supply shock led to more innovation uh, in herbal medicine. But uh, I think the really interesting finding in that paper, at least in my mind, is that once the migrant inventor was bringing the knowledge of the herb, saying turmeric has an anti-inflammatory property, and that was the first patent that was filed on turmeric. But then subsequently, my recollection is there were 17 more patents in the time frame we studied. And the subsequent patents were actually not something that was known in India. So it was adding some synthetic compound to turmeric. So that is what we characterized as knowledge recombination. Mm -hmm. And so we then essentially make, we found that for these recombination patents, the ethnic inventor was working in many cases with locals. And then we looked at this phenomena over many, many contexts, uh, starting with, uh, you know, the Russian sci uh, mathematicians moving what something George Borhas and Ina Ganguly have studied and my co-author Kurt Doran. 
And we found the same pattern over and over again, that the migrants bring some specific knowledge. And then in the second stage, they work with the locals to recombine. And these recombinations are new to the world ideas. And I think the most interesting setting is food. Uh, so, you know, there was no Kung Pao chicken in the U.S. Uh, and I don't think it's a dish in China. Or there is no Philadelphia uh, cream sushi in Japan. <laughs> but, you know, all these really interesting recombinations happen when migrants work with locals. Now, will the same sort of phenomena play out in remote work? Maybe because you, the company can get more geographically distributed. Uh, so today, you know, I think the one thing I've been thinking of is why all remote or work from anywhere is really important because, you know, people cannot move. Uh, so if I'm from Iran, uh, as some of our colleagues are, they will not give a U.S. H-1B visa, even if you're extremely brilliant, right? But an all remote company, you don't have to come to the U.S. physically. So maybe the extremely bright knowledge worker in Iran or China or any place where it's now tougher to come to the U.S., they can bring that local knowledge and maybe we'll same, see the same recombination patterns. That's, I didn't think about it, but that's really interesting. I, I think it's, it can be interesting even to study, I'm not sure if you did it already or not, um, remote research and development centers, right, where you have people from various countries, especially uh, it's Eastern countries, right? You have India, you have China, you have Romania, uh, where you have best, what's called best coast countries and best coast engineering centers, which work a lot with um, headquarters and the, the um, other comp uh, people in other cultures. And I think this kind of combination of cultures and, and then people moving afterwards from one location to another, it does bring a lot of benefits, at, lot, at least from my experience. I'm not sure if you looked ever at, at offshore R&D centers. Yes, I did. So my dissertation was actually based on um, uh, an R&D center in India of Microsoft. And uh, so there I actually found something really interesting, uh, which you know maybe is, is uh, interesting to your listeners. So I found essentially that Though these Indian uh, inventors, so first of all, I found that when the return migrants go back from uh, Redmond to set up the center in India, they are not only uh, doing really interesting things in India, they are passing their knowledge to their direct reports. And so over time, the direct reports become of the return migrants become really productive compared to other local inventors. That was one paper. Then the second thing I found was that for a local inventor in India, the constraint was not ideas. They had lots of ideas. The constraint was getting resources because what at least that company had done is they had set up these R&D centers in China, India, and Israel at that point. But all the funding was tightly controlled in the U.S. headquarters. And the funding was, dis was dispersed at four times in the year. It was dispersed mostly at four times in the year, but disproportionately in the final quarter meeting. Because if the product manager in the U.S. didn't give the money away in the final quarter, then he or she would lose the budget for next year. So what I found was that if an Indian inventor was lucky enough, and I'll tell you why it's lucky enough, there was no gaming that was possible here for when you could be in Redmond. But if you were lucky enough to be in Redmond during that fourth quarter meeting, you were much more likely to be going back and filing a patent. Uh, and so it was all about the mechanism of meeting this person face-to-face -face and saying, hey, I have a great idea and that person likely to fund you. And the reason that travel was exogenous was these Indian inventors were only called to the U.S. headquarters 
when there was an internal product launch, uh, where they were testing all the APIs to be compatible with each other. But I think, you know, so I don't know how remote work can solve this problem. Uh, you know, I don't, so maybe, um, you know, I have to think about this. So, but there are some frictions in a global firm, such as resource allocation, which are very tricky and very uh, difficult problems to solve. So that's something we have to think so, so maybe that, uh, that will lower because maybe with remote work, then exposure and then pe people from different regions exposure to the headquarters and their ideas exposure to the headquarters can be more prevalent rather than it's, it's harder to move people physically, right? And buy plane tickets, it's cost and all of that. But you can, it's way easier to listen via a conference or to have an online conference where, to, where you hear everyone's uh, idea. So why not? It might, be, it might be good. And I also think that talking about this handbook and putting all this tacit knowledge in a, in a sort of repository, that would help also because it doesn't stay only in one country, in one, in one location, but it moves around the globe and then others can do something maybe better with that information and that knowledge. No, that's true. And also, additionally, we talked about this earlier. So this is very similar to the set setup in that uh, context in the Indian R&D Center it was very similar to a hybrid remote context, where many of the inventors were in Redmond in the US headquarters with the ability to meet the product managers face to face. But the Indian inventors and the Chinese inventors didn't have that. But if hypothetically, that company moved to all remote, then no one can uh, barge into the office of the product manager exactly. and say, you know, yeah. so I think that that's interesting. But the, the question is, how long will it take for these traditional companies to become all remote? That's probably something. <laughs> uh, I think I already heard you say that you think the world is going to change after this, right? And more companies will start to think about going remote, whether that's a hybrid, just a part of the company, part of a hierarchical level or whatever, but more and more companies will think about it, even if only for cost reasons, right? For, for just not paying for, for office space. What do you think would be, from what you see right now and from what you see also in this crisis, what do you think will help them? What do you think will block them? What would be the costs and maybe some I'm not sure if you start thinking about some long-term consequences of moving all remote, because now it might some, seem like it's the holy grail, or maybe in 10 years we wake up and say, nah, maybe not. I think the consequences can be profound. So, you know, and um, this is where the, the community of scholars can really advance the knowledge. So I'll tell you um, the things I've been thinking about. So I'm working on a project with an organization called Tulsa Remote, and so what they're doing is they, for the last two years, they have incentivized uh, individual workers and their families to relocate to this town called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's a small town in the middle of America. Uh, and they pay you $10,000 for relocating and they find you a shared office space and they find you uh, a house in a decent neighborhood. So they'll do all this, the relocation uh, help. And uh, it's founded by it's 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 uh, funded by this foundation called the George Kaiser Foundation, uh, and uh, interestingly, uh, most of the people who are going back and they got like hundreds uh, of applications uh, are not from Tulsa, Oklahoma. They are from other parts of the U.S. But the motivation for them to go back is cost of living savings, 
So it's cheaper to raise a family in Tulsa, Oklahoma compared to Silicon Valley. And they're all working remotely. But I think if this becomes a trend, especially after this crisis, then you might see return migration of talent to smaller towns in America. You might see people going back to their home countries. So I'm from India. You know, I would, I have, I have uh, really old parents there. And I, I am fortunate that my research takes me there three or four times a year. But I think about my parents all the time. So if more companies become all remote or hybrid remote, we might see return brain, reverse brain drain. Uh, if people get more uniformly distributed in terms of where they live, we might see really long-term, who knows, or maybe shorter long-term, some uh, lessening of urban traffic congestion. So the, there might be environmental effects, right? So I think this is a really, at least in my opinion, uh, a really profound phenomena which can be studied in many, many ways, right? So what happens to smaller towns? What happens to reverse brain drain? What happens to environmental effects? Uh, and I, I feel collectively we can really push the frontier. I would really, I, I'm looking forward to the to the research. Do you do you think that, and from what you see, what you hear right now, do you think that em employees will start looking for companies that are all remote or that, that are supporting remote work after this? And there will be a brain drain from the companies that don't even want to hear about it and they will go back to their old ways? You know, you're right. So I think at least a, a subsample of employees will, right? So uh, there is a lot of latent demand. So I, I, I've been having like lots of conversations in the past two years with individuals. And so, you know, for people in a dual career situation, for instance, I think this is a very elegant solution. Uh, so you don't have to find two companies in the same city which physically employ you. So if you are in an all remote company, uh, even if one of the spouses is, it gives the other spouse tremendous flexibility. Um, so I've, sp I've spoken to military spouses and people with spouses in the diplomatic corps who are constantly moving. Uh, and for them, the only way they can have any continuity in their career is all remote. Uh, I've spoken to people, especially my Chinese students at, at HBS, who are very concerned about getting an H-1B visa um, or getting their H-1B visas renewed after four years. So I feel for them uh, and for, for people from many other countries, uh, this is a very, very attractive option. So I feel that latent demand was there even before the crisis. And I, I, I expect that in this crisis, there'll be some people, some people will not like this experience because this is not normal remote, as we said, uh, the kids being at home, you can't go to the gym. But some people will say, hey, I, I really enjoy this. I, I don't, um, I, 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 I didn't realize that driving is such painful. <laughs> and, and maybe those voices will become stronger. And as long as some companies understand that, they can arbitrage that, right? So they can, so GitLab today is really, really arbitraging the global. So we didn't talk about hiring, but you know, if only a subsample of companies are doing this and others are not, then the companies which are doing this, they can hire talent. Uh, more and so i feel you know many companies will see this the real estate cost savings the hiring advantages uh and i, I feel and even be productivity secular... advantages right because uh, there seem exactly. to be productivity advantages as well yeah at least in some settings yeah. yes yeah. do you think that if companies because you studied GitLab, you are looking now at Zapier. Uh, I'm not sure if you looked at others all remote, but they tend to have someone 
who deals with all remote, right? Someone who coordinates remote work uh, rather than just leave it to the CEO or to the business leaders. So they have one person designated to do this. Should companies that are starting thinking about this or will start thinking about moving either hybrid or remote, do you think they should have someone like this? I know this is not research. This is just personal opinion. No, so I, um, no, it's an interesting question. So I'll tell you my, uh, and this is of course something I've not done research on. So I'm just telling you my uh, opinion. So I feel uh, the strongest signal can come if the C-suite does it. Okay. If the C-suite does it, I think it sends a, sends a very strong signal that being remote, working from home, working in your pajamas is fine, right? And you're not losing out on information or resources or dollars by not going to an office every day. So I feel if a company is really serious about this after the crisis and sees the benefits of this, uh, just an interesting hypothesis might be to say, let's the C-suite go remote, right? And then that can act as a signal, presumably, uh, for then the middle managers, and then it might have a domino effect through the organization. Very interesting. Thank you for answering. And Raj, I have one more question that was on my mind. And uh, this is working from home and building routines. I'm not sure if you've done research on it, but what's your view on routines? Because I feel that where we are right now with this pandemic, the normal things that you would do on, on a, in, a, in a remote setting are no longer there. Would you recommend any sort of routines that employees and employers alike uh, should implement so that they go, they go through this uh, period a bit more smoothly? So I haven't done research on it, and I know there are uh, scholars who have done lots of uh, work on how individuals and organizations form routines. So the only one study that we just uh, finished the working paper, uh, we saw some evidence that people are struggling with that. So the people working from home were up till midnight or even 1 a.m. making these social contributions. So, And I can tell you from my personal life, it's been really tough to get a routine, especially with uh, the kids at home. So, but I think this is a great opportunity for also people to do research, right? And and say, what is important? Do we set uh, alarms for ourselves? Uh, do we set boundaries with family members? Do we set boundaries with our own, uh, with, with ourselves saying that now is the time to get up and go for a walk, right? Uh, because you're at least talking to some friends, you know, you could be sitting on a, on a couch all day and working. <laughs> and uh, so I feel there are multiple things that need to be studied in terms of our work routines, our personal routines, and how they need to be streamlined and how we can we can have good work-family balance, work-life balance. But I, I've not done research on that, but I think it's a, it's a great question that needs to be studied. Which is very nice, because at least with this natural experiment, we can get, we can learn very much. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Raj, is there something that I didn't ask you and you think it would be very in, uh, interesting for our listeners to understand, learn, put in practice? Uh, I think we were you were very comprehensive and very thoughtful. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us, Raj. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thanks. Take care.